And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 104, coming at you live this Tuesday morning. As always, I am your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, along with MC. And since this is your live Tuesday morning uh, call-in show, since it's convenient now, uh, those call-in numbers for you to dial if you happen to be listening are 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. That's 303-335-9527 or 303-835-1301. So what is going on with you this week, MC? Okay, so I, I saw something. I can't remember where I saw it. Was it on our page? Anyway, something about John McAfee uh, hosting the Anarchapoco or something like that. That was not on our page, but Anarchapoco okay. is kind of a big deal depending on which libertarian circles you now run in. Yeah, so <clears throat> a whole bunch of people were like, yeah, all right, that's great, awesome. And I was like, isn't he a murderer? <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. So. Okay. And a fugitive from Belizean justice. Okay, and and I I was kind of on his side for the longest time, you know, thinking, you know, okay, there's some big conspiracy theory, you know, against him. The government, the government's after him just because, you know, he's a, you know, he he was unwanted there, and they were gonna they wanted to arrest him and put him in jail, and and they're coming up with all kinds of lies and stuff. But I don't know. I saw the documentary about him and now i'm like i don't know what to believe but from from what from everything that i could see like most of the stuff in the documentary was was believable um and based on the kind of life he's he's lived it's like almost almost probable like, <laughs> i think he's i think he's a complete nutcase is the point right complete nutcase and, Not having seen and, the documentary, I'm going to use the term eccentric. Right. You you have to watch the documentary, and then <laughs> and, and then it, it'll give you a, a more complete picture of you know the kind of uh, paranoia that this guy you know lives in. So, um, and that's that's the big thing to me was was his uh, his paranoia and and that that. To me, could you know lead lead somebody to do you know something crazy like murder somebody? Okay, um, and, and again, not not to jump to his defense, but he is a security expert, and you don't become a security expert without a little bit of paranoia, right? Just saying, playing yeah. devil's advocate here. So yeah, you got to watch the movie and put everything together and be like, you know, what? There, there's there's something wrong with him, like, and and I I do I want to. I want to believe that like he's just weird and he's cool like that. But that's his story. That's just his crazy story, right? So <laughs> Right. I don't know. But uh anyway, so that that I don't know. I, I don't think it's worth like you know, and then and then he ran for president, of course, and started by um, forming his own party, which I admire. Yeah. But there's there's a lot of negative energy around that guy. So I don't know if it's like I don't know people really put enough effort into looking into him or not. But 
Well, I, I will say this again. I didn't see the documentary. Um, is, if it's on YouTube or something like, I can find her easily. Then I'll I'll definitely, uh, you know, take a glance at it at some point. Um, but the the reason he fell within like the libertarian anarchist anarchopocal scene was because um, he was on Anarchast with Jeff Berwick, like a couple of years ago. And so he got some backing because, you know, when, when you listen to that interview with Berwick, uh, Berwick's first question is, so how did you become an anarchist? Right. So, so McAfee went through his whole, you know, like, you know, stick on whatever, on how he became an anarchist. And then they actually got into, you know, the, the Belizean situation, uh, mm-hmm. with, with the murder. Um, so when you hear, when you hear his side of the story as an anarchist, right, it's completely mm-hmm. plausible Exactly. Uh, that the government is like out to get him and you want to be right. on his side and it's easy exactly. to be on his side because you go, well, the state wants him. So clearly he's a good guy, you know, right. they, they, exactly. they don't go after bad guys for no reason. Uh-huh. Um, and then he, you know, then he, then he runs for president, which, you know, we're, we're not going to advocate. Uh, I'm not going to advocate or endorse. Um, and you see his presidential run. He goes like, I'm going to start, you know, my own, my own party because I'm the billionaire with a lot of money and I can start my own party and, and make a go of it, um, on, on, you know, the single issue platform of cybersecurity. Oh, okay. Well, cybersecurity is kind of an important thing. And, you know, even now with the vault seven WikiLeaks thing, you can, you can see where that could have gone. Um, and then you want to get behind him, right? Cause he, he doesn't have a chance of winning, but he's like, he's willing to give it a go just to get the message out there. Right. I don't think, uh, hopefully he didn't, as an anarchist, he wasn't doing it for political power, but more to, to use it as a platform and had the money to back it. Um, uh, and then when he realized that, oh yeah, this is going to be like expensive, um, and you know, fruitless, uh, to do it on his own. Then he went and ran under the libertarian party and ticket and didn't get the nomination. Right. So he, right. he's got, you know, you, you kind of want to be on his side, a little bit because you can kind of see where he's going with it from, you know, from that libertarian liberty uh, anarchist perspective. Um, but again, having not seen the documentary, like I can under, I, I'm okay with paranoia, right? And you know, the, uh, I'm accused a lot of being paranoid uh, for lots of different things. And I go, well, not if I'm right, you know, <laughs> if, I, if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm right about all this, you know, then I'm not paranoid, right? It, it's not paranoia if you're actually being followed. So I'm sympathetic, you know, towards that sort of paranoia. Go ahead. So, yeah. Um, Oh, man. I I completely lost track of what I was going to say to you. John McAfee, scumbag. You have to watch the the movie to at least go, okay, there's definitely two sides of the story. And so I think he actually ran for president to make himself more popular because – Someone who's really, really popular and trying to get popularity can't possibly be, you know, a criminal murderer, right? Yeah, of course not. So I think I think he did Unless that Hillary just to, to be like, look, I have nothing to hide. And that's more his paranoia. He did it out of paranoia because he, he wanted more people just to, to, you know, feel like they knew him, you know. To be on his they, side. They connected with him. And then... And now there's so many people on his side. Even even if even if there's a, a hundred people that knew he, you know, even if there was a hundred people that saw him do it, there's you know a million other people that said no, he couldn't have done it. You know. <laughs> well, well, it, that's that's called like Republicans and Democrats when talking about their own candidate, though. 
exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, did, did, did we not just see that? But I think, but and and the same thing with you know Trump is now a murderer and Obama's a murderer and Hillary's a murderer and you know to me you know it, it doesn't matter even if um, if if he won they're they're all murderers they're no, none of them are uh, better than one another um, so yeah it's just it's just so crazy like can 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 someone who's not a murderer run for office? <laughs> Gary Johnson, and I, and I, th- I thought that was going to be Trump. At least I, th- I thought he was going to back off the Middle East, but no, no, nope. he uh, doubled down, and he's, he's on track to being worse than Hillary. Uh, he's invading Syria, and I, I will and say, I don't double, know what double down I don't as what, expected. Yeah, and I and, uh, I don't know what John McAfee would have done, but. You know, I I really don't care at this point. <laughs> done with it. All right. So uh, for the listeners, then, what's what's the name of that documentary, and where can we find it? Good idea. I'd have to look it up. Okay. So uh, it'd probably be just as easy for you. And I can okay. do it right now. But well, I can look it up too. I'm, but I'm just talking about you know people listening to the show. If they if if we had the information available, it's like all right, you check it out, and we'll post the link. If MC finds it while we're talking, uh, check out our show page, uh, facebook.com slash anarchist experience, and hopefully we'll have it up there and we'll post it in the group as well. Facebook.com slash group slash anarchist experience. It's called Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. Available on YouTube? Um, or we got to like, like surreptitiously find it elsewhere? Hour and 29 minutes. Damn, that's a full length documentary. I guess the... Tri- Go ahead. Tricked me into clicking on a damn link. Son of a bitch. It is not. That was a trick. A dirty trick. That's not the name of the documentary? Well, well, that is the name of the documentary, but it is not on YouTube. Oh, okay. All right. I hate those things. Okay, so you know where to find it, though. Uh, Gringo, uh, go search for it. You'll find it. If MC can find it and watch it, you can find it and watch it, too. Uh, the other big thing... Uh, just, you know, kind of a follow-up from what we were discussing last week, uh, and you, you probably know more about this, MC, uh, the Bitcoin ETF, done, shot down, rejected, no Bitcoin ETF. If you were, if you were, if you bought Bitcoin and hoping to get a big bump and you got nothing. Well, it didn't hurt Bitcoin at all. It's still at 1241. Um I think yeah, that was kind of great. the big thing too. It 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 like the the news barely made an impact. So here's the thing: any news is good news, unless it's like dying. <laughs> but I mean, they, they there's some some news that could be you know really bad. Um, if I don't even want to say it, but um, there's a yeah. It doesn't matter. Like whenever there's news. If, if once people buy into Bitcoin, it's really hard for people to get out of it. So if they were buying it to, you know, hold it for the ETF to come out and then, you know, sell it a year later, um, you know, the, the people who sold it after the ETF failed and just, it's it's really hard to walk away because the price isn't dropping, right? So people are like, well, um, the ETF failing didn't kill it. So I guess get back in. Nothing else to do. <laughs> 
We'll get back in, stay in. Who knows? Hard to, hard to say, but, you know, trending, always trending upward, uh, you know, even though it's got its peaks and valleys and, you know, minor crashes and all that other fun stuff. Yeah. I'm just, I, I'm curious to see. So the, the last big uh, cup and handle uh, pattern it made, you know, where it spikes and it you know, goes down for a really long time and just slowly makes its way back up. Um, could could that happen? I mean, could, could it get up to like $100,000 of Bitcoin and then just go down for like 20 years, just, you know, rolling down back at a, you know, 10,000 or $1,000 of Bitcoin. And then, you know, bef- you know, 20, you know, 40 years later, finally, you know, making it back up to its peak again. Um, if metals are any indication, I would say yes, that's possible. Yeah. Um, maybe not that long of term. Um, but as we discussed here on the show before, um, I got into silver like mid rise and didn't get out at the top. Um, mm. and that was, you know, almost 10 years ago at this point, yeah. you know, eight, eight, nine, ten years ago where it, you know, I, it was, you know, six, it was nine and it was 16 for a little bit. And I bought in at like 26 or 28, I think uh, over spot. And then it peaked right about yeah. 50. And then crashed yeah. back down to 16 mid 20s and has been, you know, hanging yeah. there for, you know, for a while. So it hasn't, it hasn't spiked, unlike Bitcoin so far, right? It hasn't spiked back up past its peak. Um, so if you're yeah. looking at other markets as an indicator, Bitcoin can definitely spike uh, and then correct. And then that correction could hold as long as that correction is necessary. Right. But there's, you know, the hodlers who are just like, I oh, know, we just keep holding. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah and you know That's if you if, if, if sometimes <laughs> well and part of the, part of this right like even though i never sold my silver um my intention was never to sell my silver right um at all just at all right i just you know it's for me it's the it's the money when the money actually crashes money and right. bitcoin could be the same thing so all the holders you know that are, that are you know just not going to get out of it at some point at some point in my lifetime, hopefully, right, the dollar has to tank. Um, <laughs> it just... Keep waiting. Ron Paul's been waiting for 60 years. <laughs> which, is, which makes me nervous, right? Because that's, that's, the, that's the one drawback to, to, the, to the Ron Paul fanaticism, yeah, right. right? It's like, Ron Paul was right. Yeah, <laughs> 50 years after the fact. Yeah. That doesn't make him less wrong, right? But you know, if you know, for the people he was talking to in the seventies, right, it right. had made no difference to them, and he's saying the same stuff now, and it's still true. And all the evidence, all the historical evidence, points to the dollar must crash because fundamentally it's unsustainable. The way the the way the monetary system works, the the system itself is corrupt. And unsustainable. So at some point, you know, it there it has to crash. It just it has to. the 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 question is not whether it's going to, but when. Um, and when it does, right? If 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 it doesn't happen in my lifetime, then my efforts were fruitless, and I cost myself, you know, some liquidity. I guess. Um, but for Bitcoin holders and and metal holders, uh, holders and silver, you know, silver bugs and gold bugs and all that other fun stuff, it's we're. 
in my opinion, at least for me, right, we should be holding for that crash, right? For the inevitability where Bitcoin or gold or silver becomes the currency in the market, uh, whether, whether or not it's the currency of the nation, right? When, when, when vendors uh, scoff at the law and say, you know, we're not going to take dollars anymore because it's, it's, you know, worth more as paper, which again, inevitable, uh, we're, we're taking Bitcoin or we're taking gold or we're taking silver or we're taking whatever it is that they're taking that the people who got in early, right, will, will be the wealthy class for now as everyone else catches up, right? When, when people, when no, when bosses have to pay their employees in, in their held Bitcoin, uh, because you know, they're the ones that can provide the jobs and have the stuff to do and have the means to pay, uh, you know, th- then it's worth it, right? Then it's like, yes, I held for a reason. Um, but, but, but if you're in it just to like, you know, make the quick buck or, you know, see, you know, as a, as a you know, s- subsidiary investment or whatever, um, I don't see that as a, a good thing yet, because like, like we just said, it can spike and crash and it may never recover. And if you're, if you're in it as an investment, you know, trying to get some liquidity out, you might panic and pull and then lose money. Right. But hopefully it will, it will never go down to zero. Like the, you know, uh, Bitcoin is unbankruptable uh, as long as people are trading it and and using it in transactions. Um, so hold for that. Uh, and we, you know, like I said, when the dollar inevitably crashes, hopefully, crossing my fingers within my lifetime, um, you know, all uh, will will be proven right. And Ron Paul can you know <laughs> get another YouTube video about how he was right now from the yeah. beginning for 50, 60 years. Uh, and you know, and, and, and take care of it that way on another note. Yeah. Um, so, so did you have, did you have something to say? Cause I was going to jump into like another little side thing that I read and maybe you wanted to comment on. Well, a couple of things. Um, uh, I, I was just, somebody posted on, on my page there. There is a response to that gringo, uh, movie about, uh, John McAfee. Um, and I just want to make a note. John McAfee likes Monero. So he's, he's obviously a smart guy. Um, and I also wanted to say that uh, originally when, when I got into politics, um, I liked Ron Paul's idea about ending the Fed. And I thought, that's super important. We, we have to end the Still Fed. Still a good and idea. Like, and that was, that was what I was all about, like end the Fed. And now I don't really want to end the Fed. I don't care about the Fed. Um, you would I ignore think, the fetter now? Yeah, I th- I think the better way to do it is uh, find a way around it, and I think that's what Bitcoin and Monero and all these other cryptocurrencies are. And I'm still waiting for a good method to bring in uh, gold and silver into the the crypto marketplace. Um, I know there's people that will, will trade it directly for gold and silver, but... Um, uh, maybe make some type of token. Like one one time they made actual Bitcoin gold coins with Bitcoin embedded in it, and then you could you could like peel the Casatius coin. Yeah, something like that. Um, so that that would be really interesting, you know, because then you'd have something, you know, physical. Uh, physical commodity. Bitcoin. Uh, well, something something worth something, even if Bitcoin completely you know, dies, the coin will still be worth, you know, an ounce of gold. Um, that would be pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so I, I just want to, you know, hammer in that point. I don't think ending the fed should be, uh, the, 
the goal or the aim or whatever, you know, let it end itself. Like you said, it's inevitable. But um, more importantly, just just find a way to use more honest money and hold it. Be a hodler. Is that how you pronounce it? Hodlers. 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 Hodler. Yeah. I don't know. It's one of those. I don't know. Okay. So within like with, within the elite community, I don't know why misspelling shit is such a, uh, a thing. Because, so I, I looked up the story about that Like you, t- was, you type really quick and you misspell something all of a sudden, like that's how it's pronounced for all uh, eternity. Yeah. It, it was this, you know, famous Bitcoiner. And, uh, you know, the price of Bitcoin was, you know, skyrocketing for, you know, up to a thousand dollars or something like that. And, he, you know, he just typed it in really fast and something, you know, misspelled it and everybody just thought it was funny. So it's stuck. You know, it's just like any, any meme or whatever that people like getting pwned. Yeah. Dude, you totally got pwned. You, you mean owned? No, I, I misspelled it. I typed a P instead of a O. So forever pwned. Yep. Stupid. All right. The the other thing that I, I wanted to touch on real briefly, MC, uh, as brief as we can be on this show. Um, I, I, I saw the headline. I did not read into the article. Um, and so, therefore, did not post it as show prep. Um, but Ether, worth billions now. Uh, I think they, they uh, were close to, like, I think a $2 billion uh, valuation. <laughs> yeah. 2.6 now. Okay. And I, try, I tried to... Only surpassed by Bitcoin. I lost... I lost a lot of money last night on it. <laughs> okay, be, because you bought in last night, or be I, like I, I sold I sold short last night, and 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 uh, somebody had more money than me and scared me out of my position, so I, I bought at a higher price than I sold. So I lost money. <laughs> I'm, I was I'm sure laughing. it was going to fall, and it and it did fall a little bit. And the main reason Ethereum is going down a little bit is because Bitcoin is going up. So. All in all, most of them are staying relatively stable at the moment, but I I, I don't like Ethereum at all. Um, it doesn't do anything yet for anybody. It's just a lot of hype so far. So uh, anyway, go on. What was your main point? Oh, oh there's no main point. I was just gonna say I'm not I'm not laughing at you that you lost money. I'm I'm laughing at <laughs> I'm laughing at the, the way you said it. Like someone had more money somebody. than me and scared me out of my position. Yeah. So, dude. Okay. You know how much Bitcoin is worth, right? Quite a bit right now. Is it like twelve hundred again, or something close to that? So, so I'm short selling. Do 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 short selling again. So, selling some more. Selling some more. I'm not really losing any money yet. You know, I'm just I'm I'm like a couple Bitcoins in the red. Um, and then this guy puts an order in for two hundred and no, yeah, two hundred Bitcoin. That's you know two hundred thousand plus dollars. Okay. I'm like, holy shit. That's going to take a while for people to chew through. Okay. I was like, but I ain't got time for this shit. So I, so I sold, I short sold 200 Bitcoin worth of Ethereum. Okay. So that order's gone. In, in, order, to, in order to avoid dealing with that order. Yeah, I just wanted it to go away so other people could sell and the Ethereum could keep going down. Okay. So I, so I got that one out of the way immediately after that. Another 200 Bitcoin order. I was like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the the more you short sell, the bigger risk you take. Right. You have to buy them back. So I'm sitting there waiting and this guy's just not selling. It's just sitting there. 
And eventually I was like, okay, three hours later, like I got to get some sleep. I'm not going to be able to sleep holding this huge position. So then I bought back. Ah. Yeah. My mistake. I, if I would have just went to sleep, everything would have been all right. But it was, it was too hard for me to do. So, eh, you know, that, that's, that's the risk you take as an investor in anything. Number one. Yep. Um, and, you know, I would say uh, if we're talking about like the economics uh, of the situation, you know, you, you valued sleep more than you valued the, 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 the value of, of Ether and, and Bitcoin at the moment, right? You went, this sleep is more important to me than the money that I'm about to lose. I, I, it wasn't just that. It was, you know, if, if you stay up too long doing the same thing, you know, staring at the computer for too long, uh, and, you, and, and, you know, I didn't make a way for myself to deal with that situation. Um, and eventually... Uh, it was more like I was tired, so I made bad decisions. Okay. So that that was that was part of it. it was just uh, the decision making pro- pro- process of of wanting to stay up in the first place, and then being forced to stay up, and then you know being so tired that I couldn't handle it anymore. So <laughs> and then and then the bad decision following. So. <laughs> well, my my bad decision was staying up until two o'clock this morning playing Zelda. So, <laughs> oh, that's that's at least it didn't cost you thirty grand. So. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but See, um, and that that always yeah, blows so, my mind. I don't even make thirty grand a year. And you're like, oh yeah, I just you're, you're like my other buddy. He's like, oh yeah, I just lost thirty grand. I'm like, dude, like I can't even. That's that's numbers doesn't even like register correctly to me. Yeah. So what what's frustrating to me is is the taxes because I I don't really. I don't really sell any of my Bitcoin. So um, I'm not taking advantage of any any money that, you know, any value that I have. Um, so I'm still in that mentality. Like, yeah, 30 grand is, it's a it's a ton of money. It's like, it's an insane amount of, uh, of money and responsibility too. And at least you recognize it's so frustrating that. because the the government just you know from my from my regular job you know takes uh, a minimum twenty thousand dollars a year off off my salary and and I I made some bad mistakes you know financially in my past um, that I'm you know still paying for you know debt and stuff but my biggest expense my biggest expense out of you know my all my loans my cars um, you know credit cards everything. You know, even all my debt put together, my still my biz, biggest expense is taxes, and that's ridiculous. That's a yeah, crime a single, in and of itself. Single big biggest expense, and and so next next is probably food after that because I eat out quite a lot, and then uh, and then just my my debt and bills you mm. know, put together. Third, not really related to the show, but it's eating out like a generational thing. I kind of think that it is. Like I I don't know because okay so I'm 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 gonna get into this briefly right like I I don't pay for food very often right I've I've positioned myself where I don't carry a, a huge like food expense um, and I've done this by working places that I get paid in food right like you know it, it, you can call it a trade off if you want to. 
Um, but for a while I worked uh, at a salad restaurant. So I got, you know, I worked six days a week and I got six salads and I stretched those salads to seven days and I never had to, you know, and so I never needed a meal. And then I got a job at the gas station. The gas station had food, so I'd eat that and I'd work there, you know, six days a week. So I, you know, needed to buy food like once a week or, you know, just, uh, you know, again, take home a little bit of the, the throwaway stuff and, and make that last. And then now I work in a restaurant. So, you know, three days out of the week, uh, since that's, those are the days I work in a restaurant, I'm, I'm well fed um, with uh, the, the food that the restaurant allows me to eat. Uh, and the other days, the other days for a while, I was, you know, taking home leftovers from my mom's house. Um, and I offered to do this, you know, because she's like, oh, no, if you don't take it, we just throw it away. We don't eat leftovers. I want that's <laughs> that's insane to me. Like, you know, food, food otherwise is expensive. So like, why would you just throw it away? And I guess one of the reasons is because, you know, they, they that particular generation, uh, at least in, in my family, right? Like my mom cooks daily. Like she spends her time in the kitchen and, you know, my, my, my grandma was like that. And when I was living with my dad, my dad made dinner, you know, not every night, but, you know, since it was only the two of us, but he made dinner and then we ate the leftovers and that, you know, we were, we were fed, um, but people I talk to now, like people my age um, and younger, d- don't cook at all. Like my wife doesn't cook. She says she wants to cook if she had a kitchen, and she a- she has access to two now, and she still doesn't cook. Right? She still eats out like almost daily. Um, and I was, you know, I, uh, I was talking to a coworker yesterday who also works in a restaurant. Right? He's like, you know, the the server at the restaurant. And he said that his daughter, um, who, you know, would, would have to be a little bit younger than me, uh, spent like a thousand dollars last month on the credit card and food expenses. I went, that's insane. Like who spends, who spends a thousand dollars a month on just food? Like whose bill is that? It's because she eats out all the time. Like she doesn't, you know, she, she does not eat at home. She doesn't cook. She doesn't, you know, so it just for me, I just I, I from from my limited experience, right? I don't want I'm I'm trying not to project this, but I'm wondering if it's if if it can be extrapolated out to a, a generational thing. Is it like you know Gen X, Gen Y, and and the millennials if they just like don't bother cooking at home, um, and if not, why? Right? Is it that you know we're we're so busy working two three jobs? Um, a lot of us, at least a lot of the people that I know, that there's just no time to, to, you know, get home and, you know, spend three hours in the kitchen putting together a meal and then having the time to eat it. I don't know. Uh, if, yeah, for, if you want. For me, that's it. I, I, I just, uh, so one of the places I like to eat is Aloha Salads. Great place. They, they put together a really good salad, you know, and if I wanted to make a salad that good, I would have a lot of, you know, extra, you know, waste salad i guess i mean i i mean i don't know i don't know that because i don't do it but um i i feel like i wouldn't you know easily be able to do that it would take me you know like you said like three hours or whatever i'd have to buy all the materials and make sure they don't get get old in the refrigerator and it just you know it just seems like a lot of hassle just it's easier to let somebody else deal with all that um so i'm not saying we don't cook at home we do but we generally don't make as good food and it still takes the extra time and sometimes even the cost. Like if you go to the supermarket in, in Hawaii, at least it, se- it seems like the, the, the price is like double that what's on the mainland. So 
um, yeah, it seems it seems like it's still expensive even if you do eat at home. So I don't know. I don't really know the actual cost savings. I'm I'm sure if I was eating in order to save money, which I've done that before too. You know, I wasn't always rich or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, if if I'm if I'm eating to save money, in in uh, then probably yeah, I'd have to eat at home a lot more often and and be frugal at at the grocery store, right? Right. But if you're always eating out, you don't have to be frugal at the grocery store because you're not there. You just <laughs> you just uh, make your purchase decisions based on you know is it an expensive restaurant or not. Uh, some you know some people live at McDonald's, you know, or live on McDonald's, not at. Some people live at McDonald's. <laughs> some people live at McDonald's. Yeah. They they keep that one cup that they can refill for days. <laughs> Well, okay, so I, I guess my next question then, or my next thought, right, is economically, uh, ge- with within this generation, right, ha- have the restaurants reached economies of scale where before it used to be like, oh, no, it's so much cheaper to, to eat at home, right? You're like, because look at how much food you get at the supermarket for such little cost. Have the restaurants gotten to a point or has food costs gotten so high that restaurants are now more ec- economical um uh, versus the cost, right? Is it cheaper because yeah. they, they, they get all the ingredients cheap, they combine it cheap, you know, they, they provide you with one meal, um, there's, no, there's no waste, there's no leftovers, there's nothing like that, and uh, yeah, have so, we reached that some, point? In some ways, like, it, it depends on a lot of things. So, like, if you have multiple people in the household, it's easier to, to take advantage of, of all the food. But, when I, you know, if you're living, uh, you know, if you're single and you're the only one eating that food, it's a lot easier for some of it to go to waste. Um, and it's, it's harder to cook for one person, right? So um, it's, easy, it's easier to cook bulk food um, at, at a lower price, right? It just is. So, you know, depending on the situation, it definitely could be cheaper or, yeah, cheaper to eat out. And a lot of it is how much do you value your time? Like you mentioned, you know, taking three hours to make a meal. I, I couldn't imagine that. That's like impossible for me i just no i don't have the time for that um i i would probably get get another job working you know ten dollars an hour you know work work an hour and then get a meal for ten (laughs) dollars i don't you see what i'm saying like the three hour thing doesn't make sense to me (laughs) if somebody else is already ready to make me a meal you know in five minutes and all I have to do is have $10, then that just makes more sense to me. Right. Sure. I guess. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's really the the question is, you know, is, is that what it's become? Um, be, because it's, as, uh, it's morphed into a time preference, um, and a, a value of convenience or a necessity, uh, just because it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's easier to work, it's easier, even if it was, if it's a three hour thing, right? You get a ten dollar an hour job, you make thirty bucks, you you get your one meal, and you can get a decent meal for thirty bucks. So, uh, how do you want to spend your time? Um, you know, right. doing doing something else, or you know, being at home cooking? And I don't know, right? Yeah. So if seems- you had a, if you had a family, let's let's say you have three kids, then then it actually it could make a lot more sense to stay home and make the meal, um, especially if you have to 
you know, watch the kids at the same time so you don't have to pay for a babysitter. And <clears throat> and you you can make it in bulk and, you know, kill, kill a whole bunch of birds with one stone, basically. Um, and is that yeah, something, yeah. you know, is that something that with the devaluation of the currency and, again, the rise in expenses brought on by inflation where, you know, the, the role of mother, I guess, uh, you know, morphed from the the person who did stay at home and did all that to you know someone who had to make the extra income for the house so that you can afford to go out to the restaurant and buy the meal. Like my uh, again, you know, my mom who, who does this, and I live at home now, so I get I get those leftovers, you know, on day one instead, um, on occasion, right? I don't, you know, I still I still manage to not be home a lot, even though I now live at home um, because I work a lot. Um, but she's, you know, she's a, she's a, a prototypical housewife, right? She spends the majority of her day, uh, in the kitchen, um, you know, and, and also like in the sewing room, she goes from like the kitchen to the sewing room. Um, and that, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's her little world, um, for the most part. Like, I don't, I don't want to, you know, marginalize her and say like, you know, that that's all she does and that's all she's good for. But you know, when, when I'm around, that's where she's at. And that's, so I, I can speak to that at least, um, but so, so again, my environment was, you know, she's, she's been able to live her life as a housewife for the most part and do the cooking. And it just seems that again, uh, you know, not to be too redundant, but current generation, it's, that's impossible, um, for much of, much of us, uh, to, to, to live that type of lifestyle with any sort of, you know, comfort. Right. All right. Anything else? Now that we nope. went off the rails, headlines. Uh, I'm I'm glad we took up a lot of time because I again, I've you know, I'm not I'm not saying that you know I'm I'm overwhelmed or overworked or anything, uh, but I I will say with the new show schedule, I find less time to do show prep. Like I feel like I'm always hustling at the very end, whereas before I was like you know, oh, I got all week to do this, and you know all of a sudden it's like damn I got to get this shit done. Um, so here we go, headlines. Oregon couple forced to destroy their pond because government ruled it illegal. Excuse what? Me. I know, right? Headline. A video shows WPD sergeant falsely tell us, telling citizen to stop recording him because of state law. What? What? <laughs> Headline. How the black market is saving two countries from their government. All right. Headline. Why aren't Americans filing their taxes this year? IRS is 6 million fewer filings than 2016. All right. Headline, when equal access means zero access for all. And finally, and fi- yeah, they're, they're all interesting. That's, that's why I picked them as show prep. Uh, and finally, headline, as a follow-up from an article we did not get to last week, uh, Muhammad Ali Jr., Stopped again <laughs> after testifying about first airport detention. Uh, any place in particular you want to start this week, MC? Um, so much to choose access, from, I know. Yeah, equal access means zero access for all. All right. And and I think um, I, I had a thought I was going to say, and it's it's like it's like struggling to get out because I'm so tired because I stayed up so late. But yeah. um, they they. <laughs> They do that. Okay, so this is this is where it was coming to, uh, the marijuana or pot, pot prohibition, like, like the the whole law about um, 
the government can regulate things and make things completely stop. I don't know. I, I didn't think that was the point of the whole bill. But anyway, uh, what is, is this, this a about? new bill? Okay, this one. Uh, th- this is this is has to do with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, when equal access means zero access for all, uh, reading into the article, there is irrational comfort taken in, in the belief that man-made laws somehow ensure equality for all. More often than not, not the, the exact opposite is true. Within the next week, UC Berkeley will be forced to remove over 20,000 lectures, videos, and other digital documents from its free online library. While the prestigious school has been generous in making, it, making its electronic resources available to the public, a violation of the American with Disabilities Act has left the university with no other choice but to remove the online archive in its entirety. We are currently living in the golden age of information, where the internet has provided the world with, limited, with limitless sources of learning without ever having to leave the comfort of home. Like many institutions of higher education, including many other Ivy League schools, UC Berkeley has contributed to open source learning by sharing its curricula and other materials to online platforms like YouTube and iTunes, as well as its own site. While many were celebrating the fact that technology has helped make Ivy League education accessible to anyone with a computer and a wireless connection, others did not believe this accessibility went far enough. Enter the state. Nearly 3,000 miles away from the iconic Sather Gate entrance at UC Berkeley, two employees of Washington, D.C.'s Gallaudet University, a school for the deaf, were outraged to learn that Berkeley's online archives, though extensive in scope, were not accessible to those with hearing impairments. Instead of contacting Berkeley to see if accommodations could be made without resorting to state information, the complainants sought help from the Department of Justice. After investigating the claims made by two Gallaudet employees, the DOJ came to the conclusion that, yes, Berkeley's free online archive had in fact violated the ADA, particularly Title II, which mandates that all public audio and video content provide accommodations for the deaf and hard of hearing. Among these stipulations is the requirement that all applicable content offer closed captioning, which regrettably 543 of Berkeley's videos were missing. The, GO, the DOJ has declined from publicly commenting on the matter, but its letter to Berkeley officials laid out the alleged violation clearly. The department found that of the 543 videos it could identify on the YouTube channel, 75 had manually generated closed captions. Of the remainder, many had automatic captioning generated by YouTube speech recognition technology. Unfortunately, the government is not a magical entity. It cannot wave a wand and level all playing fields without trespassing on someone else's freedom along the way which is precisely what is happening as a result of the complaints filed against UC Berkeley. All or nothing. All 20,000 files will have to re- be removed from the online library. Now, instead of one group of people having limited access to a very small portion of Berkeley's extensive online library, the whole world will lose access to the entire archive. UC Berkeley was put in the unfortunate position of being demonized for providing free information. To satisfy the ADA's requirements and keep the content alive, the university was going to have to reformat all the videos in question. However, this process is both timely and extraordinarily expensive, which left Berkeley with only one remaining option if it wished to comply with the DOJ's demand. In September, Kathy Koshland, Vice Chancellor for Undergraduate Education at the university, made the following statement. 
In many cases, the requirements proposed by the department would require the university to implement extremely expensive measures to continue to make these resources available to the public for free. We believe that in a time of substantial budget deficits and shrinking state financial support, our first obligation is to use our limited resources to support our enrolled students. Therefore, we must strongly consider the unenviable option of whether to remove content from public access. Last week, the university made its decision final and announced that it will begin the process of removing all the content on March 15th. To add insult to injury, it turns out that removing this digital library will ultimately end up requiring about five months' worth of work, a cost UC Berkeley will be forced to pay. The market provides a way. While this entire situation is frustrating, there is, of course, a possibility that the two authors of the DOJ complaint had no idea their actions would result in a major loss of public information. However, for many people, and perhaps even most people, they view the state as the benevolent enforcer of all things good not realizing that the government entities always hurt what they claim to protect, liberty. The fact that these two scorned Gallaudet employees felt they had no option aside from involving the state in this matter is the real tragedy at hand. Perhaps if instead of choosing to file complaints, these two people would have channeled their disappointment and passion into a positive solution, both parties could have benefited rather than both sides losing. Generally speaking, people love being part of something bigger than themselves. Giving back to the community we feel connected to and dedicating ourselves to a cause we feel passionately about is part of the human experience. Just as technology has made sharing information more convenient than ever, it has also made fundraising and coalition building easier as well. Utilizing crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe and Kickstarter.com allows individuals from all walks of life the opportunity to feel as though they are investing in some grand unified effort. It allows each donor to feel as if they have participated in something important, whether they donated a few thousand dollars or just a couple of bucks. Imagine an alternative reality where instead of pursuing legal action against UC Berkeley, those who felt passionately about this matter joined together as a community and raised awareness and funds in order to provide the funding needed to have the 543 videos reformatted. If they had criticized by creating instead of litigating, not only would the problem have been solved in a more productive manner than it actually was, but all parties would have actually benefited in the end. Berkeley wouldn't have to spend several months taking down its content. Those who wanted the content adapted for those with hearing impairments would have not only gotten what they wanted, but they would have also raised awareness and possible donors to their own school. Additionally, the entire world would have also continued to benefit from the use of Berkeley's material. Unfortunately, as this situation has so aptly demonstrated, once the government gets involved in the scuffle, everybody loses. Uh, Your thoughts, MC? Yeah, typical government. Um, yeah, and and uh, I just don't understand why people, especially in situations like this, they they can't like come to some other agreement, or like either um, maybe they could just give away the videos for somebody else to host that you know not hosted by UC Berkeley, um, or or maybe they could get a waiver and say you know. This is free stuff, and you know we don't have the money to comply with it. Um, and you know, I don't know, make some type of deal. I I just can't believe that they would go to that level of you know uh, taking taking access away from other people uh, to accomplish you know uh, compliance with the stupid law. <laughs> you know? I hate deaf people. 
Well, and that, you know, that's, that's part of it. And that's, you know, part of the unfortunateness of the culture, right? Like it's, it's, it's the, the permeation of the state throughout the mentality of the individuals, right? And it's, it's, it's pervasive insofar that when, when people see a problem, right, the automatically, the, the, the automatic response is, there ought to be a law. Right. The government, the state has to do something. Uh, And I I hear this a lot. And and again, it's because like um, I live in like two worlds, uh, you know, for the most part. Like I I listen and I I pay attention um, to the liberty and anarchist related things. Um, And on a separate side of my world, uh, I listen to, you know, like, you know, technology and video game stuffs. Right. Like that's that's my other side hobbies. and I always want to say, like, stay in your lane, uh, because a lot of what I hear on, you know, the, the technological side of things uh, when it's coming to, like, you know, the advancement of technology is, well, of course, the state has to step in and regulate these things. Like, who else is going to do it? Um, and that's, you know, and, and again, it's because they don't have the mindset, the liberty, the liberty mentality uh, to understand that the state need not step in. Right. But it's it, it's ingrained within them and ingrained within most people that uh, for for every problem, right, every individual problem that you face, uh, there there is a state ready, willing, and able to solve it for you, uh, or a politician ready to take up your cause in exchange for a vote. Uh, so when when you know when the when the school for the deaf goes, you know, hey, how come that how come we can't have that free stuff? Or, or more like, yeah, we can't have the free stuff. Uh, you know, then then the the automatic reaction is again not to contact the school and say, hey, how come we can't have that free stuff? Is or offer support, right? Hey, do you mind if we take your free material and add subtitles to it? You know, so that the deaf people can access it too. They go, I think they're breaking the law, and I'm seeing something, so I'm saying something. And so they contact the DOJ and they get the state involved and they ruin it for everybody. Right. They didn't, they didn't even get what they wanted. Right. The, the, if they're, if they were like, oh, you know, we, we want access to that free stuff too. Right. They, they subverted their own goal. They sabotaged their own, their own, you know, desires by involving the state. Right. And it's like, you know, like the parents who go like, if you're being bad, I'm going to call the police and you go, I dare you. And then the cops show up and shoot your kid. Right. It's like, it's, it's not what I wanted, but you involve the state. So that's what you get. So, you know, like, you know, you will get no sympathy for me. Um, and at the same time, I'm, you know, it, it's hard to be sympathetic toward a university that takes state funding, you know, at, uh, with UC Berkeley. Um, you just, just use that state funding to take the material down and, and all is well and good. But it just it, it's more goes to show. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, as the article highlights, right, the, the article doesn't say much about that, but it goes to show that, you know, when the government steps in, right, nobody wins, ever. The, the, the government itself is, is at best uh, a win-loss position, uh, and more often than not, a lose-lose position. And people have trouble wrapping their head around that fact, um, and instead of looking for win-win situations, they, they settle for win-lose, at every turn that they involve the state mc right on we need to get to the next one all right which one are we going to which one do you want to go to mc 
how the black market is saving two countries from their government. All right. How the black market is saving two countries from their government. Uh, ever since governments began banning and licensing different parts of the economy, the black market has made sure people still have access to the things they need. Unstable governments always turn their own citizens, turn on their own citizens by using price controls, heavy taxes, and even the threat of imprisonment to prop up their failing systems. Uh, as conditions inevitably deteriorate, as they have in Venezuela and Greece, the underground economy becomes invaluable to those living through the crisis. The shadow economy refers to more than just the trade of illegal goods. A gray market, for example, provides legal products that have become difficult to find. Since basic things like toilet paper, medicine, and even food have disappeared from store shelves in Venezuela, the peer-to-peer -peer network has become the only reliable way to secure life's necessities. In desperate situations like this, the existence of independent merchants can mean the difference between life and death. Even the value of Venezuela's currency has started to move away from the government's control. At one point, the official exchange rate was fraudulently set at 10 bolivars per U.S. dollar. Uh, while on the black market, it was trading at 1,000 to 1. This action hurts millions by suppressing wages across the country and eroding any remaining trusts. Inflation has quickly become the most imminent threat to Venezuelan people, stealing the value of their labor and savings. Uh, for years, the Bolivar has experienced hyperinflation, increasing the cost of living almost exponentially. The state's desperate response was to institute price controls, but that only led to shortages across the board. Luckily, the unregulated market has been able to determine the true value of goods and provide vital support for the struggling communities. Many people think that this so-called price gouging is unethical, but isn't it better to buy what you need at twice the price than to not be able to get it at all? Uh, Greece is going through transformation of its own, but in response to a very different set of circumstances. The Greek people have endured a series of tax increases and pension cuts over the past several years to fund debts owed to the European Union. Uh, these austerity measures have created a dire situation for those trying to secure their financial independence. Uh, the result has been widespread tax evasion, which has helped grow Greece's underground economy to nearly 25% of the country's GDP. Surprisingly, it's not only the poor that are utilizing the shadow economy in Greece, uh, but also the professional class. Those earning large amounts of money are subject to extremely high tax rates. Uh, driving many business owners and entrepreneurs to either seek better opportunities abroad or to take steps to conceal their income. Uh, by persecuting the most successful members of society and not allowing them to keep what they earn, authorities are only encouraging disregard for the law. Uh, without the gray market in Greece, many more skilled workers would have already left the country. Even though the black market is consistently blamed for taking away tax revenue, it ironically may be the only thing keeping the debt crisis from spiraling even further out of control. Uh, scarcity is more than just a mindset. It's a harsh reality that people born in developed nations rarely see firsthand. But anytime a bankrupt government seizes control over the citizens' lives and economy, the end result is always despotism. The consolidation of power into the hands of a few is rationalized during chaotic times, but ultimately puts the rights of all citizens at risk. Uh, just last year, Venezuelan law enforcement carried out raids that killed 245 people. There was no accountability regarding whether the shootings were justified, but reports claim that many of the victims posed no threat and some were even killed after being taken into custody. Such violent crackdowns are the inevitable result of government's attempt to maintain control amid the chaos of a broken economic system. 
In 2011, Robert Nurich wrote a report for Foreign Policy that highlighted the importance of this untaxed, unlicensed, and unregulated global marketplace. He called it System D. Uh, they say that inventive, self-starting, entrepreneurial merchants who are doing business on their own without registering or being regulated by their bureaucracy and, for the most part, without paying taxes, are part of a l'économie de la débrouille, or for street use, system D. This essentially translates as the ingenuity economy, the economy of improvisation and self-reliance, the do-it-yourself, or DIY economy. Uh, side note, agorism. Uh, back to the article. The nanny state has done an excellent job attacking anything outside the government's jurisdiction, but a lack of regulation is what allows for the most rapid growth and productivity. Legislatures notoriously overestimate their influence on the millions of people they attempt to rule over. But ultimately, grassroots decisions made by individuals have the greatest impact. People who rely on their own skills and reputation rather than the bureaucratic stamp of approval are labeled criminals. But they're the ones providing real value to society in many cases. Uh, merchants in these off-grid markets are often associated with danger and violence, uh, but in reality they provide the purest form of voluntary transactions. Negative aspects like organized crime are only made possible because of the profits created as a result of prohibition. Without the state intimidating the public at gunpoint, there would be no incentive for people to seek out the services of nefarious organizations. Uh, these organic free markets are only strengthened with the circulation of assets like cash, Bitcoin, and precious metals. Anonymity mixed with technology is empowering people in ways never imagined. The adoption of cryptocurrencies is bringing the shadow economy into the digital age and expanding its reach internationally. This new economic system represents a, represents a very real threat to current financial and political structures. However, innovators in this environment have to be careful, and after the Silk Road was taken down, real legal implications became apparent. Most famously, Silk Road co-founder Ross Ulbricht was sentenced to life in prison and targeted specifically for challenging the existing system. This growing progression towards decentralization has attempted to catalyze is on a direct collision course with the central banks and their war on cash. As the public's faith in fiat money continues to wane, there will be more and more opportunities to show the benefits that come from peer-to-peer -peer networks over central planning. Those who recognize the inherent extortion of the old systems have to lead by example and educate others, regardless of which tactics of intimidation are deployed against them. Uh, your thoughts, MC? Oh my gosh. That is well written. I don't think I need to add anything to it. Um... Yeah, that's that's really. <laughs> I guess that goes to the heart of uh, agorism. Um, do things, you know, the the free economy, the underground economy. Um, don't ask the state to do it. Just do it. You want a lemonade stand? Just make one. <laughs> Be damned the consequences. Yeah. Um, so the the one thing that the state does. Uh, well is 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 drive things underground and and so you know especially with the prohibition of drugs they 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 created that underground market and uh because of that there there is uh a more vibrant underground economy than there would be if if they didn't prohibit those things so it's kind of like the government shooting themselves in the foot they want to control everything but then they make they create an underground market so, and some people will say that you need to thank the government because without the government, your underground market wouldn't be making any money. And I go, well, 
Yeah, but without the government, the underground market would just be called the market, and the entrepreneurs would be, you know, still making money. Right. Entrepreneurs are always going to make money. It's it's in spite of government. Um, the government just makes it harder to do. Absolutely. Um, unless unless you're in the government, getting paid by the government, and um, which is the biggest battle I have with family members. Right, because my my mom and they go like, eh, it's a living. You just you work for them and they pay you. I go, yeah, but it's immoral living because they're stealing from people. It's like, ah, you got to get paid. It's like, all right, if you're okay with theft, shit. If you're okay yep. being a robber and a murderer for hire, then yes, working for the state is perfectly legitimate. But don't be surprised if you're robbed and killed in the process. Any other thoughts? Um. No, I think we're good. All right, so start an agorist business and take Bitcoin and Monero and maybe Ether because who knows what to do with that at this point. And, and watch the John McAfee uh, documentary. Gringo. And, and, his, and his response to it. I, so it was, actually, the response is, is from him personally, so uh, I haven't watched that yet. But I, he, the guy is smart and uh, convincing, to say the least. So... Um, I don't know. It's 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 really hard. It's a hard decision to make. Is this guy legit or not? I don't know. And That's as long point. as he's anti-state, I'm I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for now. <laughs> I'll watch. I'll, I will check out the documentary when I'm able. Right on. Once I find it. Or we could go over at Andy's house. Andy loves that movie. <laughs> yes, it, we could. As as long as he plans it, I've I've still got a couple of friends that I want to invite to the next anarchist experience meetup, uh, and uh, our, our buddy Andy seems to be a, a very nice host. He's the one we did the roundtable with a few weeks ago, if you remember that. Um, so yeah, ho- hopefully we'll expand the discussion and and get more people invited. And if you're listening to the show and you want to come to one of those, uh, let us know so we know to invite you. Anything else, MC? That's all. Thanks. All right, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, you guys know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, facebook.com slash anarchistexperience. Uh, if you want to get in on a discussion, finally, and let us know what you think about these articles, uh, do that in the groups, facebook.com slash groups slash anarchistexperience. Uh, and if you want to contribute financially to the show, we do that through Patreon. So patreon.com slash the anarchistexperience. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you all next week. Peace.